And um, today we, we talk about growing up. Growing up's tough, isn't it? Right? Every adult in here has had that moment in your life where you realized you were an adult and you're not sure how you got there. Yeah? Right? You're like, am I really going to be in charge of all this? Like, this is, someone's trusting me with all this. And then that moment when you, if you've had a child, you, you, you have that child in your, in, your, in your grasp before just that first minute, you're like, how can this be possible? I've got to take care of not only myself now, my wife, but now I've got to take care of this one now? Like, what, what is happening here? What is going on? We've all been in that moment when we just kind of wonder, like, like adulting's hard, right? It is. And, 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 we, and we're always, every around every new corner, we just kind of get challenged with some new things that we, even at 47 years old, I still kind of come around the corner going, ooh, I wasn't expecting that, didn't, wasn't ready for, for that to happen, and, and it does, and, and you've got to learn how to respond wisely to the world in which you live, and when the world in which I live. I've learned this, that not only was I unprepared, um, you know, when I became a father, when I got married, I'm routinely reminded these days that even being a parent of two teenagers, sometimes three, let the reader understand, um, the, that, that, that sometimes we are just, like, I'm reminded that how ill-equipped I am for that. I mean, Caleb and Asher are really good at reminding me how, what I need to know when I need to know it, right? That's what teenagers do for us. They remind us of all the things that we need to know. And I'm deeply thankful, though, for what God is doing because God's doing some amazing things. And I see it in all our children in this church. The maturity and the wisdom that our teenage, our young folks are having, and I think it's because of faithful, sometimes a trepid, you know, kind of pathway forward in terms of how we raise our kids. But we do need to grow up, right? And one of our responsibilities as we grow up as adults, as we grow up as Christians, is to what? Relinquish our childish ways. And so many times, even as an adult, I find some of those little parts, recesses of my life where I go, man, I still need to grow up in that area. And yet, as a Christian for a long time, even being a pastor for a long time, I still find those places in my life where I, I still need to grow up out of childish uh, spirituality, childish Christianity. I need to grow up into Christ. I need to grow up into who he is and, and really behold who he is in every aspect of his life in my life. And, and yet, it's sometimes it's just growing up is just hard. Well, Paul has been hammering away at the Corinthian church's use of worldly wisdom and, and, by, and by converse neglecting their neglect of that spiritual wisdom that has been provided through them through the cross, through Christ crucified. And at the core of these opening chapters that we've been plugging away with, these first, uh, first two to three chapters, now we're in chapter three, Paul has been exposing that deep, incessant pride in all of us. See, behind the worldly wisdom is pride. It's, it's a pride saying, I can figure this out on my own. I can do this on my own. I can even be a Christian and do this on my own. I don't really need what God has to say in my life. And, and Paul has been, been really been hammering back and saying, showing them how their pride, my pride, cripples me. It cripples me because it puts the emphasis on me and my abilities and what I have to do. And I have to have the answers for my marriage. I have to have the answers for my parenting. I have to have the answers for whatever other part of my life is. And so at the root of this pride, at the root of their pride, our pride, is, uh, as we've seen, was all the way back, at least in the, chat, in, in the Corinthian churches, this superficial and childish relationship that they had with their spiritual leaders 
They were unable to discern the depth of the gospel message that these wonderful leaders that God had given them, Paul, Paulus, and whoever had given them, and they were unable to see the practical relevance of this wonderful truth for their lives. And so they were looking at what? Their gifts, right? They were looking at their wisdom. They were looking at their skills and their, of their spiritual leaders, which, again, is not wrong, but it's not the first thing we should look at. Rather, they should be looking at their call. They're called by God to build a church on the foundation of Jesus. And that's what Paul's going to get to this morning. He's saying the reason why you get your leaders all turned around and you misread and misunderstand their role in your life is because you haven't seen the foundation that they've been building everything on in their building of this church. And so today, Paul is going to confront this rampant spiritual immaturity within the church by showing them how futile their wisdom is as opposed to the wisdom that they need in Christ. And that they've been nursing on spiritual milk when they should be at this point growing up into the solid food of the gospel in their life, the meat of the gospel. Sorry, vegan friends out there. The, you know, that we need this, right? Right? We need this. If we want to enjoy all that the gospel holds out for us, we must relinquish our childish ways, yes? And it's not easy. I, I dare say that most of us have been here. We've been face-to-face -face with this in our spiritual lives, and we realize sometimes we, get on, we, can, be, we can get into the church track, and we, we're in here, and we're, we're, we're part of all what God's doing, but sometimes we're just face-to-face -face when life throws challenges at us, and we go, how ill-equipped we are because we have not pressed Christ into that part of our lives as deeply as we should. We must relinquish our immature ways. We must relinquish our immature assumptions about life. So in order to teach this to the Corinthians and to us by virtue of benefiting from Paul's letter, Paul will use three metaphors this morning. Um, people always get after preachers because they'll mix their metaphors during sermons. I've been guilty of that. But Paul actually mixes his metaphors this morning in a wonderful message to us. He gives us the metaphor of family that we must give up childish Christianity, we'll see in our first point. He gives us the metaphor of, an ag of agriculture, agricultural metaphor, right? Where we need to understand God's use of spiritual leaders and their job of planting and watering. And then he's going to give us this wonderful metaphor of architectural metaphor. Some of us like that engineering mindset. And he shows us that because we're the temple of God, God is building on the pro that, that building, you and I, must be built on the proper foundation. So let's just take those things one by one this morning and, and see what the Lord has for us. First, I just want to talk about that first point. We must grow up out of childish, childish spirituality, childish Christianity. And that's in verses 1 through 3. Let's just read again. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The one thing I just want to note from the very beginning here, and I noted it in our first sermon in the series. How is he addressing them? Brothers. Brothers and sisters. So he's addressing them on the foundation of their confession, who they say they believe in. He's speaking to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's very important that we get this. This is a kind of a tone moment. He's not coming into this moment with a, like a superiority, judgment, frustrated kind of thing with these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's coming to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is important because, again, we noted in that first couple of sermons in our series, Paul's letter is warm. This is a tough letter. And we're going to get into some really 
complicated and weird topics that they've written Paul to, to help them answer, some things that were dividing the church. And this is going to be this litany of topics we're going to get into here in chapters 5 and forward. But he's not frustrated with their f- struggle in their church. He's like a brother, an elder brother, a father figure. He's got a warm heart towards these Christian brethren. He's not got a condemning heart. He desires to help them course correct and grow up into the gospel that they say that they confess. Friends, this is a wonderful truth for us this morning. How we address one another and how we walk with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy to do the whole, you know, put the finger in the chest thing. It's easy to wag our, like I said last week, wag our finger in someone else's face. But if Paul doesn't treat this church who was literally a hot mess, a dumpster fire, if you will. I mean, this is the, the mess that they were in. We're going to find out way more of that down the road here. If he doesn't treat these out, it's he treat them as outcasts or lower than himself, but as kinsmen with a deep commitment of, of, of spiritual interest in their well-being, why should we do any different? Brothers and sisters, we should walk with one another. We should speak frankly to one another. We should speak directly, yes. But we should be warm in that. We should want each other's growth in this. And sometimes hard words are necessary, but we must do so in a way that we communicate that we love you and we love one another. And that no matter what happens, we're going to still walk with one another after this is all done. And he says there, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, as people of flesh, but, no, but, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The word people of the flesh here is, in the Greek is sarkinoi. And, and I don't, again, I don't like to always use Greek, but sometimes in this particular passage it's helpful because you're seeing a distinction when you look at it this way. We said last week there was this, this, this distinction between the natural man and the spiritual man, right? There was the, there, there was the uh, sikakos, right? That's the natural man, just his basic instincts. And there's the pneumakos, that's the man with spiritual instincts. And here he's just finding a kind of a somewhere in between. He's not saying the church is natural man. He's not saying you're not believers. He's saying you're just believers who live in very fleshly. He's, he's saying this verse distinguishes between those two, those two between the, the, the immature Christian, between the natural person. He's not the natural person. You're not, a, you're not an, an unbeliever, so act like it. You know, in some ways, there's a sense that he's, he's using this as a, as, a, as a way in which to show them you're not natural, but you've got some growing to do. You've got to grow up in your faith. He's addressing these spiritual concerns and he's by no means assuming they are merely just unbelievers, but that they're believers who just need to take and understand the, the, the depth of what the gospel does in their life and it does in my life. But he is implying you need to grow up. Like there's no doubt in this whole passage that there's a strong command, grow up. You're childish. You're acting like babies in Christ. He does, he's not afraid. See, see how he does it? He's warm. Brothers and sisters, I have a deep concern for you, but you're being babies. You're being children, and, and you need to grow up out of this. He's not afraid to use this metaphor. He even goes so far as, this, I fed you with milk, not solid food, and, and you were not ready for it. And you're not even now ready for it, he says, for you're still of the flesh. For while you were, for, for while you're there, there um, so for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? In other words, there's a point when every parent knows this, right? You've got to move your children from milk to solid food. 
because that's when the real growth will happen. It's great for the early days, yes, however long that may be, but there's a point in which we must transition. And like Paul knows this metaphor lands well because everyone in this audience and everyone in this room understands the common practices of new parents, particularly mothers to children. Babies start out on milk, but that's not the goal. It's not our job just to feed our kids milk all their days, right? Because we would never see them grow up. We'd never see them grow up in full-form human beings. There's a point in which they must transition out of that. The goal is to strengthen them to the point that they will eat solid food. And they'll grow up into men and women of integrity and character, men and women who will serve and love the world we live in and serve and love Christ. And so Paul has spent, at this point, a year and a half, remember, in this church before, before leaving and then writing this letter we're in right now, and he'd been discipling him. And he's going back and he says, look, I, when I was there, I only gave you milk, but you, you could never get above. You were always just kind of just okay with the milk, but you were never, I could never push you beyond that because you had these other associations, these other affinities in your life. What, God, what does he mean that I fed you milk, that we need to grow up in this, that you need solid food? Now, some will note that this is Paul referring to the content of his teaching. In other words, what he's saying, some will say is, well, you, you need the gospel. You never had grown up out of the gospel or above the gospel or beyond the gospel. You need to grow up into the serious stuff, right? You know, doctrine and serious moral thinking and serious this and serious that, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. I love uh, what Tom Schreiner says. Preaching Christ crucified cannot be relegated to mere milk. What he's actually suggesting here is that you actually grow up in the gospel. You grow up through the gospel, right? That we, he's, not, he's saying that the gospel is, uh, is not just a doorway, but we must grow up beyond, and I mean that we must grow up beyond the gospel, but that we must grow up through the doorway, into the living room of our lives, into the kitchens of our lives, the bedrooms of our lives, where we do all of our life together. The gospel has a, something to say into all of those things, To grow up out of our infantile faith is to grow up in the depth and breadth of Christ crucified in every single area of our lives. It touches on every aspect of our lives. We never grow up beyond the gospel. When he says grow up in this, he's not saying that you and I just know the ABCs of the gospel. We know how to walk the aisle. We know how to pray the prayer. And then we know how to say, oh yeah, Jesus is my Savior. But no, we're we're pressing that into every Every crease of our lives, every point of our lives, everything. But it's even more than that, thinking theologically. We've already talked about this before, but I want to say it again. When you talk about the work of the gospel and how it presses into our lives, we're recognizing that the gospel is not our work. I don't know if you figured that out yet or not. It is the work completely and totally by Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. And here's a shocker for you. It's God who works out your conversion. It's also God who works out your sanctification. It's also God who works out your glorification. And so when we say press the gospel into every part of our lives, we're pressing that truth into this thing. You and I living in in light of the hope we have in Christ and the spirit being connected to that works in our lives and changes us and it helps us fight sin. It helps us love the church. It helps us want to worship more. We joyfully participate in all of these things, our sanctification, right? We, we do want to participate. We want to read our Bible. We want to pray and we want to worship together as a church. But it is first God's work that God's the one doing that in us. And we happily participate alongside that. 
That's what changes our hearts. That's where the heart change happens. You're not living in a fleshly way as it relates to your conversion. This is where many Christians get all kind of turned around. They learn some kind of worldly understanding of the gospel. Okay, yes, I believe in Jesus. I've confessed and I prayed to prayer. And yet I still then, when I go beyond that, I'm leaning on what? My own pietism. Right? I lean in on my own revivalism. Sorry. I lean in on my own legalism. I lean in on my own biblicism for that matter. And I know all these isms make, doesn't make sense, but unless we can talk more about that another time. But the reality is, fleshly growth in Christ is, not, is, is us learning, leaning away from the power of Christ and leaning into our own power. And that's where the, that's where the, Christian, you know, the Corinthian church is. And it's where much of the Christian church is at different times in church history. That we lean away from the power of Christ, that, that the very thing that saved us is also the very thing that keeps us. And the, very, and the very thing that changes us. But we lean away from that and we think that we've got to become wise. We think that we've got to do the right thing. We've got to act accordingly. And of course we do. But we do it in the power of the Spirit and trust in Christ and what He's accomplished. Does this make sense? Is this landing? I hope you get where we're going and what, what, what we're trying to say. And he says, even now you're not ready. I, I was teaching you and I was discipling you for that year and a half and you're not ready. You're still in the flesh. In other words, you haven't yet still grown up in the gospel. Some years have been passed since this point. Three years, I think, between the time he left and now he's writing this letter to them. What is he doing? He's, he's saying what C.S. Lewis says in his well-worn statement. We're still, they're still playing around in mud pies when they have a holiday at sea to have. Yeah. This is what much of Christianity is about. We, we, uh, we do in our lives when we, don't, we divorce it from the power of God. We're okay just kind of walling around in the mud puddles but there's so much more when we recognize and grasp the holiday at sea we have of Jesus what Paul is saying here is that there is an expectation friends to grow up it's a command and you go that's a heavy command that feels like a burden Tom yeah the law calls us to grow up now we're going to find out Again, as we've already said, the growing up is not necessarily all ours to do. It's God growing up is resting and beholding and, and trusting and only in Christ. And in that, as we continue to cling to Christ in every way we in everything that we do, the power of Christ begins to work in us and resurrect us. See, the, the job, as I've said already, to grow up is, is not an easy one. Again, as parents, we know this, right? It's not just our job just to house our kids, right? Make sure that they don't fall and stump their toe. In fact, it might be okay if you let them do that. It's not our job to just let them live in a life where they just don't have to have the cares of the world around them. That's not true either. Part of the hard part of parenting when they're young and moving into the older ages, and I'm saying this as someone as I'm still learning this, is to let them fail sometimes. Let them experience the hardness of the world and be there to show them Jesus when it's on the other side of that. And Paul's not saying growing up means perfection. Paul's not saying that growing up in Christ means that you've got all the word down on yourself and that you're just like, you're just a model Christian. He's saying, no, it means that you're walking through and you're, and, and you, and you trip and you stump your toe or you find something, you're walking with a limp in your life, you're doing so leaning on Jesus. 
That's growing up in the gospel, friends. That's growing up in Christ. When our lives are ever, every day leaning more and more, more of my weight is leaning on Jesus in my life, not on me, not on my abilities and not on my ability to figure it out, right? So my bowlers understand this, right? Like if, you, if you've ever taken a kid bowling, you know you got to put the guardrails up, right? You've been in this, you know the guardrails. And that's perfectly fine for a certain portion of their lives, but it's pretty embarrassing when you start getting to a young adult age and you're still, you're still bowling with the, bowl, with, the, with the guardrails up, yes? Everyone knows this. Unfortunately, some people still do that. I watch it like, and I've done that, you know. I mean, it's, that's not the way. You don't grow up in bowling if you don't actually, if you don't start leaving the guardrails down sometimes. Friends, moms and dads and parents, I mean, I hope this is an analogy helps for us in our parenting, but I hope it helps us understand our, the gospel. The life doesn't give us guardrails. Jesus does. And Jesus is that. Jesus is that. And, that's, and we know this as we lean more and more on him, that, that life goes off the edge sometimes. It goes into the gut, and it gutters on sometimes. But we need Jesus constantly to come lean in on and lean on his power, not on our own, to fix the situations that we find ourselves in more often than we want. And so the example that Paul is using to show them their childish ways was, is what? That they're only thinking in a natural way as it relates to their leaders. Jealousy and strife had hit this church deeply. They, they, they measured themselves by themselves. They measured themselves by their worldly acumen. They measured their, their leaders by this way, and they were measuring and understanding Paul's role and, and, and um, Apollos' role and, and everyone else's role so poorly. They were looking all at their giftings and their skills. And this is what we do, right? This is what we do. We look at our models in life and we go, well, okay, that's a model to follow. And then you get on Twitter, you get on TikTok, you get on whatever you're doing, and you go, man, that dude's got the right answers for this weight loss routine I need to get on. Or that guy understands what marriage is all about. Fine to, it's fine to listen to some of those voices. But the only hope for your marriage... The only hope for your parenting, the only hope for your vocation, the only hope for your going forward to, to run this life until the end is Jesus. That's the only thing is. And so because they were so focused on those things, jealousy and strife and division were in the church. And so he begins and they begin. And it's all due to the fact of, oh, I like this guy better than this guy. And so that leads us into our second point. It says we must trust God's function for spiritual leaders. We must understand them appropriately. And you need to understand what God has designed for the church and the leaders he gives the church. And we can easily apply these to the pastors, elders, and deacons of our church. And I hope that that's what you'll do. But it's more than that. We must understand how God uses spiritual leaders. Look what he says. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not merely being human? What are they guilty of? What are we oftentimes guilty of? Well, number one, we're oftentimes guilty of mindlessly following our spiritual leaders. Right? We do this a lot in American evangelicalism. We never think through what a leader says or does. We just assume, well, okay, he's got the platform, and so I must just trust him. I, I, I mean, I had so many people come here, whatever traditions they come out of, and if they have their guy, and they'll ask me the questions based on their guy, whoever that guy may be. And friends, it's not our job to mindlessly follow our spiritual leaders. You must measure your spiritual leaders on faithfulness to the word. You must measure your spiritual leaders on faithfulness to the word that has been, that has been given to the church throughout all the ages. 
and how he is standing on those things, particularly your pastors. Not on their clever words or their charisma. Infants can, this idea of infants can, can indicate a childlessness, a naivete, a blindness to their spiritual leaders. They treat their guy, whether it's the biggest guy on the, the, the conference circuit, or maybe even the guy that's standing in the pulpit every Sunday as the 13th apostle. Right? He's the guy. And if he said it, him and Paul must have had a conversation about it. That's not true. He has to stand before the word of God. He has to stand before the confessions and decrees that have, that have helped guide the church all the way through these years. He must be faithful to those things. The, the faith once delivered, as we see in the scriptures. And this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. And it's unfortunately what happens in a lot of American evangelical churches. Right? Just, just no, don't do this. But because I'm in this world way more than I want to be. But just watch what happens unfold in Reformed Twitter. Reformed Baptist and Reformed Presbyterian Twitter. It's an absolute dumpster fire. Because it's always one guy saying, I'm better than the other guy, or I know more about this guy, and you need to follow my guy, and my guy does this, and your guy does that. And it's just this cold... It is literally 1 Corinthians on display. And it is sick and twisted. It really is. I watch it and eat popcorn. It's pretty awesome, pretty entertaining sometimes. But it's awful. It's awful demonstration of what the church should be. And I, heaven forbid unbelievers see this and, 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 it, and it impacts their ability to trust what we, what we say we preach. But on the other hand, though we might fall into the mindless following of our leaders, we also might be careful that we don't kind of put ourselves in that suspicious following of our leaders, right? The people who kind of walk through life just don't trust anybody. And so they just kind of walk in here and they go, well, it's me and my Bible. And so if this guy does what I think he's doing right, the Bible, then all of a sudden he's truthful and faithful. And, and so there's those people that come into the church and do that as well, right? They are those who, who only themselves, they, 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 they've wrongly appropriated that Berean spirit. And when I say that they've wrongly appropriated it, the Berean spirit does not call you and I, again, I've said this before, to be naked priests. Meaning we, this is me, my Bible, myself, and I measure everything based on my understanding, and then that's how this determines the faithfulness of this leader. That's not what the Bereans were doing. The Bereans in Acts, I can't remember what chapter it is off the top of my head, they were together assessing Paul's message. They were doing it to see if Paul was preaching truth at that point. And so there are some who suspiciously follow their leaders. They, 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 don't, they just do things on their own. They, they always stand outside of the church, peering into the church, making their assessments about the church. That's not the way we're supposed to do life either. Christians should submit to the church and submit to the church's leaders that they have felt were qualified to lead them. Now, if they are found to be unfaithful, yes, leave that church. But Christians are never called to be individualized partakers of the gospel. We're called to be part of the community together, and we're working this thing out. I've said it before. I keep saying it a lot these last few weeks. We read the Bible together. We do this together. But then he goes in and says, so, so this is their approach to their leaders. They're either mindlessly following them or they're suspiciously following them. And so Paul goes into it and says, what then is Paulus? What is Paul?" They're servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so Paul is saying, so this way that you've trusted your leaders is way outside the bounds. Paul corrects their kind of 
sycophantic ways in which he lists their, their words. Like this, oh, I'm just going to follow this guy because he has got such the personality. And friends, over the last several years, we have seen this. We've seen the fall of some big time names and friends. And they're still out there. And, and what's, what's this is so bizarre about our world is there's still people following these guys. Paul says, no, my ministry is not a platform. My ministry is not to build the megachurch. My ministry is not to build a bunch of people who follow me. No, my ministry was, and he says it very clearly, I plant. Paulus, he came behind me and watered. We're one in our ministry, and God will measure our labors according to our faithfulness to that. And he says very clearly here, right? It's keep on verse seven. Neither of them, neither, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive the wages according to his own labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So the measure according to God, the way God uses his leaders is they plant and they water. But they don't grow anything. You know this, right? You've been in the garden. You've put seeds in the garden. You don't, and you water the garden, but really, be honest with you, from there, we don't really know how it all works, do we? I mean, we got the science, but really, to be honest with you, there's so much more that goes into that, growing a, growing a garden than just us putting a row of seeds down and someone watering it. It's sun. It's all nutrients of the soil, things that you and I don't control. It's God who gives the growth in our spiritual lives. And God uses spiritual leaders to plant and I love that. I think this is exactly what we've seen throughout church history. When we think about those leaders who plant, they're the ones who are proclaiming the gospel. They're doing, a lot of times, the work of evangelism. They're the ones who've, who, who, are, who, who are trying to bring gospel presence to unbelievers. They're planting churches. Lowercase apostolic ministry. I'm not talking about like Paul and Peter and all the apostles in the first age of the church, I'm talking about lowercase apostolic ministry, like, like in the book of Acts where they're planting churches, the kind of ministry that leads out in planting gospel in the frontier environments, like missionaries and church planters. They plant. But then the spiritual leaders who, who are watering the seeds, they're the normative, right? They're the ones who are in charge of the ministry of the word. They're the ones who are praying and shepherding Showing up, walking and hemming in the flock and as the flock's moving about and the decisions are made for that church for as it continues to grow and flourish, like the shepherds are there making sure that the, the sheep are hemmed in and cared for and prepared for the work that lies before them. And friends, this is often the pattern. This was Paul's pattern, but it's also the pattern that we find throughout the church in the ages, like planting churches and preaching to contend for the gospel, forming a community of people who believe into local churches and then finding and appointing a protege like Timothy who goes and raises up elders for that local church. And then the following after that, the pattern, and then it's rinse and repeat. Every sound denomination or network of churches has always followed this basic formula, some way, shape, or form. And that's why we find it important that we don't just isolate ourselves into one little independent church, that we are part of an association beyond ourselves, even if the association is not always perfect. We are part of a pillar network, which we love, and they are very similar in theology as we are. We're part of the SPC, and it's a broad umbrella, and sometimes there's some frustrations in that, but there's some also good things that are in that. But we do so that, so that we can hem in, and we're do, not doing this alone. We're standing with the church in all ages. I, have a, I hope one day we can start a Timothy and Titus group here, where we're raising up men that are either going to be elders in our church or future church planters or missionaries or 
God's going to seminary. That's what we want to do here in, in, in years to come as we continue to get. But we're in these really growing years right now. We're trying to figure some of those things out and how we would do them ourselves. That's why we're digging into our local associations, the Concord Baptist Association, which is Murfreesboro, and Nashville Baptist Association, which is in Nashville. We're part of both of those associations. I'm, I'm actually on the church planting team in the Concord Association. Because we're there to work together to plant more gospel presence in our communities. Rutherford County is one of, if not the fastest growing county in the state of Tennessee. We need more churches. And we need to unite with more brothers and sisters to make that happen. So there's, there's planting ministry and there's watering ministry. I do a little bit of both. It's just kind of my life's always been, I'll have one foot in one side and one foot in the other. It doesn't mean you have to be one or the other. But the point is, is that I'm not in control of what happens with that then. We can plant a church. We could have planted this church seven years ago, and God could, may, have, may, have been, may have been okay to say, we don't grow beyond the 35 that were originally part of us. And that would have been just fine. God can grow the church any way he wants to, but he's chosen to do something else in our fellowship, doing the same thing with other churches. God's the one who gives the growth to the gospel ministries. He wants to flourish so that the good name of Jesus goes to everyone that we can possibly give it to. Friends, churches... And their pastors are not built off of one's skills. You don't need a particularly anointed leader. I, I see guys out there, and it, listen, it's okay to have a little bit of social media presence. I do a little bit of videos here and there for us, normally just inside ourselves. But just this idea, when, when I've said it to you before, like when you get up there and like, I got the word for you this week, right? That mentality, like, ugh, that kind of makes my stomach turn. I don't have any word for you. I have the Bible. Spirit of God is with us. He builds his church accordingly. Churches and pastors and their leaders are not built off one's knowledge or wisdom. I'm still learning a lot. I'm still growing in the gospel. I'm still reforming. I'm still trying to understand all the historic witness of the church. And I hope that you'll come along with me. I think many of you are. Churches are not built on emotional infusions either. Where this party up that happens on stage is somehow or another going to get spread to you. You ever been in that moment? You're like, oh, that's, not how, that's not how gospel movement works. Just because some people, some guy on stage or a bunch of people up here playing guitars gets excited about something doesn't mean the people in the, in the, in the audience are going to get excited. It's when they're nourished and watered with the word, like husbands water their wives in the word. Pastors are to water the church in the word, and that is itself through the Spirit changes the people. We're a word church. So then what that means is, and our third point is, we must properly assess the work of faithful leaders. And, and verses 10 through 17 pretty much outlines this. He gets into his third metaphor. So we went through the familial metaphor, the agricultural metaphor of pastors or, uh, and leaders who are watering and plant, planting and watering the word. Now we get into this third one of a building, God's temple. And throughout the Bible there, God's church is envisioned as a building, brick and mortar. So it's not, a, it's not, it's not okay. It's like this building is not the church, but the church is housed in this building. But he says, you and I are the bricks. And the, and, the, and the covenant bond between us is the mortar. And we are to be that temple that builds up into the glory and show the glory and the magnificence of Christ everywhere we go. God, it's new temple as it is. So for Paul's purposes, he's continuing to correct their view of spiritual leaders by using this vision to show what kind of leaders the church needs. He says, because you're the temple, you need leaders who are going to build on the proper foundation. That's what he does there in that first point there, verses 10 through 13. According to the grace of God given to me, I was like a skilled master builder. 
and someone else is going to build upon it and let each of him take, uh, take care of how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so he says there in verses 10 through 13 that Christ is the only right foundation. If you want to know what kind of leaders you got to follow is, are they building the church on Christ? How many churches are built on the wrong foundation? That's not our job to go out here and just be judge everything because we don't know everything goes on in another church. We can assume things, I guess, but... A church that just talks about seeing people saved and talks about gospel proclamation and preaching the gospel, but only in lip service. Churches that actually are more focused on the the momentary cultural whims of the world, right or left leaning, social justice issues, contemporary novelty. Those churches are, are, are... are blinding and they're confusing and they're not showing Jesus as they should. No, a church that's built on the right foundation is careful. Careful church. But we're not in a hurry to grow. We be careful to, to, to mature and grow the believers along with us as we're growing up on the foundation of Jesus. And Paul says a, a, a good leader's Works will show. Are, are, are they building up on gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, whatever? He's saying they'll, it'll be tested. It'll be, it'll be tested by fire. And those who build faithfully, like with precious stones, gold and silver, like the full body of their work, by the way. Churches mess up time to time. Leaders mess up time to time. We're talking about the full body of the work. You learn and you grow up constantly, steadily, their, their, their trial by fire will prove that they are sound, right? But those who build on other things, like wood, hay, straw, their work will, will disintegrate at some point. Because ultimately, that's what happens. There, a few years ago, a noted pastor who made a big headwind into some ministries that, that even circles I ran into, Came out, he had to be removed from his church and got removed from the network that he was part of. And the church that he was part of had multiple campuses all over the East Coast, eventually just dissolved. Some of those churches, those campuses became churches and they survived. Most of them did not. It got burned up under the pride of one leader. It was all about him. So there's examples here Paul's giving of good leaders, faithful leaders. And then there's examples of those who are not. He says in verse 12, okay, verse 12, but now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or we said there, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work it is to be done. Verse 14, the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So in other words, faithful spiritual leadership receives a reward. I hope, and that's what I pray for, for, and that's what our elders want. We want this ministry to be a reward, not something that's about us and our glory, but about a reward that is given to us because we just kept everything about Christ. 
That's what I hope for and pray for. I hope that the, the, the full body of work that happens here of the generations of this church until Jesus returns proves that to be the case. They see Christ in everything. They are doing everything by building on the foundation of Christ. They are intentional. They are careful. They are patient. I get impatient. I see good things happening. I just want to press fast. I want to, I want to, oh, I want to, I want to get moved, keep pressing that. But I just got to be patient in what God is doing. But then he says there's poor leaders. And says, and theirs will be burned up. Because they didn't build their church. They, they built it on Christ, but they didn't, they didn't build carefully on Christ. They are saved, as the Bible says here, as Paul says. They, they have the gospel in some sense, though Paul does not elaborate exactly what that means. But in time, basically, their work just gets burned up. And ultimately, on that final day. So you have poor spiritual leadership. They, they, they may know Jesus and they may have a church for a season and they may see some good things happen, but ultimately the weight of their work because they built uncarefully on the foundation of Christ, they don't build something that lasts. Pray that Grace Church is built on something that lasts. Would you do that? And then there's destructive spiritual leadership. And that's what he gets to in these last couple of verses here in 16 and 17. I just want to read those specifically. Because I want to be warned by this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God takes seriously leaders who are either act faithfully and behave and lead faithfully, but he also takes seriously those leaders who act destructively. They're trying, to, they're trying to erode the foundation of the church. They're trying to redefine the foundation. They're trying to tear down that foundation and make it into something else. And we see this, yes? Seeking to tear down the church, redefine the good things that God has given us in marriage and in family and in gender and sex, redefining worship and the fanaticism that many American evangelical churches employ in corporate worship. They redefine what a pastor and elder is in their work. Some abuse, some of these pastors tend to be those who abuse and heavy shepherd their churches. And then other of these tend to be those who basically um, are there to exalt themselves, make their ministries about them. And then there's those who neuter their position. They neuter the position of a pastor and they render the church weak, compromised, unprotected. Those are the kind of leaders we need to be warned about. Ones who would abuse the church, ones who would use the church for their own gain, and those who would neuter what a pastor's doing and render the church unprotected by the assaults of the culture, assaults of the world. We must be careful of that. Redefine the church as some kind of either culture warrior club or social justice warrior club. Both of those sides are the same side, uh, two sides of the same coin. It's not the church's mission. Preach Jesus. Leaders, preach Jesus. Our elders, preach Jesus. Our deacons, preach Jesus. Our Sunday school teachers, preach Jesus. Lead teaches and teach Jesus. Excuse me, teach Jesus. Church, the only way I know how to end this message this morning is that we would be called to a time as we come to the Lord's table in prayer. And so as we get ready to prepare for the Lord's table, I'm... I'm going to ask that we spend some time just in silence and then um, we'll start into our Lord's Prayer 
I mean, we're starting to the Lord's table together. Would you pray this morning, quietly to yourself, just for a few moments, just for a moment, that God himself would preserve the ministry of this church and that he would not only build the leaders we have here up, but continue to build leaders for the future generations as we plant more churches, hopefully, Lord willing. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer this morning in quiet silence for a moment, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Jesus, this morning as we come to you, we think about the, the daunting task of being your church in this day. So many things assault us. So many things threaten us. So many things render us, can render us unprotected. But Jesus, I pray, I pray, I pray that as we move forward as your people, that you would strengthen the leadership of this church. Multiply the leadership of this church. Multiply this church's ministry into planting new churches. Faithful churches built on Christ. So Lord, as we take a moment to pray for our church, pray for her growth. God, thank you for what you're doing here. Continue to do it. We love you.